Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the August 8, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Calling all athletes, reporting for practice. Today, returning to the show are James Hicks, UCI professor and director at the Center for Exercise Medicine and Sports Sciences, and Michael Yassa, UCI professor of neurobiology and behavior and director of the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. Their research follows the continuum from the benefits to the hazards of exercise on brain health. Of concern are the NFL bangs we've been reading about from the GEM article, the disparities of women in research trauma and men versus women's response to trauma and lots in between. Be right back after a short station break. My guests for the whole hour are James Hicks, UCI professor and director for the Center for Exercise Medicine and Sports Sciences, and Michael Yasa, UCI professor of neurobiology and behavior, director of the Center for Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. First, Jim Hicks is UCI professor of ecology and evolutionary biology, and recently served as interim vice chancellor for research. As director of Exercise Medicine Sports Sciences Center, he has had a great deal to say about the new paths of teaching research and outreach that consider the benefits, the impacts of exercise from the biophysical to a cellular level. Professor Hicks is a leading researcher in comparative physiology, especially the cardiovascular system. We'll tap liberally into his recent work on traumatic brain injury in athletes, a major part of the concern of this program today. Professor Hicks earned his BA in biology at Cal State Fullerton, his Master's of Science, his PhD at the School of Medicine at the University of New Mexico, and his postdoctorate work at Max Planck Institute in Germany, as well as at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. My other guest is Dr. Michael Yassa with the Department of Neurobiology and Director of the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory, and currently a Chancellor's Fellow at UCI. He also maintains an appointment on the Faculty of Health and Sports Sciences at the University of Tsukuba in Japan. His research focuses on how the brain learns and remembers information and how learning and memory mechanisms are altered in aging and neurological disease. He earned his bachelor master's degrees at Johns Hopkins and his PhD at UCI and continues his research here at the Institute for Memory Impairments and Neurological Disorders. Trained as a neurobiologist and experimental psychologist, he examines neural mechanisms of memory from a network perspective using advanced neuroimaging and neuropsychological techniques and establishing early preclinical biomarkers that can distinguish between normal and pathological neurological changes to improve diagnosis and treatment. Lots of really interesting work has been done since both Professor Hicks and Professor Yasso were on this program, and how it keeps getting more interesting is our focus today, especially findings on how exercise contributes to brain health and brain pathology, along with known gender differences. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, James Hicks and Michael Yasso. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having us. 
Well, when one thinks about physical activity and exercise and the brain, the immediate image is sports and traumatic brain injury. Yet, regular aerobic physical activity also enhances brain health. Good news first then, folks. How and what kind, Michael, of, of impacts do different exercise have on our brain health. You've looked under the hood at physically active lifestyles, especially with young adults. What can you tell us? Well, that, that's a great question. So to start out, uh, it's very clear that physical activity has a number of positive effects on health in general, but uh, particularly interesting in our case uh, on brain health. And uh, now it's become abundantly clear that even small quantities of regular aerobic exercise, everywhere from children all the way to uh, senior citizens, are uh, very, very helpful in terms of being able to maintain cognitive function and uh, be able to uh, preserve the brain and, and protect it from all sorts of neurological insults that can happen. Now, this has um, uh, really become a major area of research more recently uh, because we're also understanding that there's a role for physical exercise as medicine, as a way to be able to potentially treat neurological and neuropsychiatric illnesses, especially in older adults. Thank you. I don't know, Jim, anytime you want to jump in, because yeah, I mean, this I, isn't a collaborative interview. Yeah, I can jump in a little bit. I mean, Mike knows this uh, very well, that, I mean, if you look at, if we look at a disease like Alzheimer's or dementia, there's all this growing evidence that regular physical activity can alter the trajectory of that, uh, the progression of that disease. And there's clinical trials going on right now at UCI that are actually looking at that in more detail. Uh, so I think that that's real positive news about the role of physical activity and how it actually may change the structure of various regions within the brain that can improve memory. I mean, Mike, you might want to... Well, I think w one of the most exciting things that we're doing now is uh, trying to understand how this process happens. So I think a traditional wisdom has always been that physical exercise is going to be beneficial for brain health. But now we're starting to answer more nuanced questions, um, thinking about what kinds of exercise, what durations of exercise, what time of day, uh, whether different exercises for different types of individuals, different body builds, different genders, different ages, would make more sense as, as far as uh, being able to uh, stave off brain disease or, or help with uh, maintaining cognitive function. So it's these more complex questions that we're now trying to answer. So both of you are working, you're not that siloed, you're working with a lot of, collaborating with a lot of different disciplines, uh, fields in your respective centers. So I don't know if by the end of this, we're going to have you fill out a contract and you're gonna, <laughs> you've got another path to follow jointly, but uh, I'll, we'll be looking for that. Well, right. I mean, one of the actually the, one of the primary missions of the Center for Exercise, Medicine, Sports Sciences is to try to promote bring together the community of scholars on the UCI campus that are interested in physical activity. And so, you know, Mike and I, we've been interacting a lot over the last year or so because of the, the role of not only him being, you know, being the director of the Center for Neurobiology of Learning and Memory, but also the Exercise Medicine Center, getting together and really talking about these issues and thinking about future research projects. And so last year we co-sponsored a big, or actually this year, back in February, we co-sponsored a big symposium, one-day symposium on the role of physical activity and brain health. So that was a scientific symposium as well as a public lecture. So it was very successful uh, collaboration on that. All right. Are you hopeful that uh, the National Institutes of Health, National Academy of Sciences, and other available funds, and we're all watching budgets getting trimmed with the current national leadership, but are you 
feeling like you still got lots of uh, wind in your wings here on uh, deepening this nuanced questioning? I think so. I think that um, it's going to proceed certainly with support from the National Institutes of Health especially, and, and it can't really go on uh, without having adequate support that way. Um, it can't just rely, of course, on the Institute. There has to be additional resources that, that funnel into this kind of research. But we can see that there's definitely more attention paid to it. There are particular funding opportunities that are focused on lifestyle interventions. And in particular, in the case of things like Alzheimer's disease, where we have unfortunately experienced a lot of failures in terms of clinical trials with, with pharmacological interventions, this may really be an avenue to pursue more forcefully in the future. The avenue being the exercise. Yes. Right. And so uh, let's say we're into what Jim Hicks has been working on. And uh, other sources for, in his water polo research, he was supported by the U.S. Water Polo and, of course, locally UCI's uh, School of Medicine. Jim, since your appearance on the, the show two years ago, you've completed the study with neurologist Stephen Small, and it's about water polo concussions. Could you tell us about the design of your study, uh, the demographics, how difficult it is to get authentic records for your athletes because they're, they're coming to you after they've been doing all kinds of things. Right. Well, as we may have talked about last time, I got interested in water polo because my three sons all played water polo in high school. And then my youngest had played also club water polo and played, uh, it was a division one athlete at UC Davis and played water polo. So watched water polo for a long time from the pool deck. And as you said in your introduction, I'm not a neurobiologist. I'm not a neurophysiologist. I'm a cardiovascular, cardiopulmonary physiologist by training. But being a physiologist being and being the director of the Exercise Medicine Sports Science Center, I got interested in the uh, w what was going on with concussion in water polo. And having watched the game, knew that there was a very physical game and started to do an epidemiological, looked at whether there had been any epidemiological studies on concussion in that sport and found that there had been no there was studies. nothing nothing so we took on uh, with uh, Steve Small the director at that time chair of neurology and myself and a project scientist in his lab Rob Bumenfeld who's now at Cal Poly Pomona took upon ourselves to conduct a survey an anonymous survey where we contacted current and players uh, of males the game. Male, mainly well males and females and females too okay uh, who, who had played the game and that was done through the help of USA Water Polo. So USA Water Polo uh, sent out our souvenir or our link to our survey to their membership, and we got about 2,200, 2,500 responses, and analyzed that those results and published that a little over a year ago. And it was the first then epidemiological paper on the prevalence of traumatic brain injury in the sport of water polo. So received a lot of attention because of that. So what sorts of results surprised you? Um, what surprised me was not the fact that there was a significant amount of concussion in the sport. About th If you looked at all respondents and aggregated that all together, about 38% of the respondents said they had had more than one concussion while they played the game. What surprised us was the number of concussions that we saw, the prevalence of concussion in goalies in the sport. Had there been, before the study, the velocity measurement of the water polo ball? People have measured the speed of a water polo ball. But, but just had, not against but, a head. But not against a head, and they had not looked at the forces that were imparted by the ball on contact. And so we actually, as part of a bigger study, 
I've been collaborating with our Henry Samueli School of Engineering, particularly with Dave Rinkensmeyer, Professor Rinkensmeyer Lab, and we have done several studies now on looking at the velocity of water polo balls at various inflation pressures and measuring then head impact forces using an anthropomorphic testing dummy, not a player, right. and have developed then describe the response of inflation pressure and ball velocity. We also had the opportunity to take a radar gun out and measure the ball velocity of the U.S. national team a few years ago uh, to get sort of range of, of ball speeds. That Blow are, our minds with those velocities. Well, from a low end of around 30 up to about 50 miles an hour. <sighs> and the ball weighs, the ball f and the men's ball weighs about 480 grams. So 480 It's a half grams. a kilo. That's a, yeah. almost, that's a pound. It's a pound. And if it's thrown and it hits you in the head going 50 miles an hour, that's a significant amount of impact force that can be generated. So we found in our survey data that goalies had self-reported lots of head hits and lots of concussions during their career. And that surprised us to some extent. But what we also found that I think was the biggest surprise, that most of those self-reports of concussion and head impacts in goalies occurred during practice, not during game situations. Okay. When we talk about this trauma situation, we're going to talk about repetitive and the mild. So I, I'd like for you, so everybody has this mantle of the authority you have carried from the water polo traumatic studies to now eyes over here, folks, with the latest, the release of the Journal of American Medical Association research on the chronic traumatic encephalopathy on what were the, the subjects were all deceased, 202 football players. I know, Michael Yasa, you are in the neuroimaging business. What was your initial impression when the NFL scans were released to the public? Well, I, I wish I could tell you that it was a surprise, but uh, in fact, I think it really confirmed what we've always suspected uh, based on neuroimaging data from live players uh, that have surfaced over the last few years, namely that there are changes in white matter, changes in gray matter, changes in a lot of pathological features in the brains of those individuals that are suffering uh, concussive injury repeatedly. And uh, having the postmortem histological data to actually see evidence for CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy was really a more of a confirmation than, than a surprising finding. The fact that it was uh, really across the board in almost every single one of the NFL players might have seemed uh, a surprise initially, but as soon as you start to look at the neuroimaging data, you see that's actually a very consistent picture. So in some ways, it's, uh, you know, obviously it's not good news, but I don't think it was a surprise to anybody who has been doing this kind of work with neuroimaging. Well, in preparation for this interview, James Hicks, you were talking about there was a very strategic reason behind why we're looking at that article today, this week, last week. Yeah, there's a, there's a rationale. I, I believe, I don't have any inside information, but there's a rationale for why I think JAMA published the article right now when they did, and that is that it's the start of summer training for the NFL football camp. And so I think you get the most interest. You know, this is when real interest then arises again about the issues associated with concussion. Uh, and so that's why I think that the timing of the article is around now. Well, there's also high school and other camps, too. Exactly so I, right. I don't know. I haven't put a uh, videographer on, you know, over at Modern Day to find out what the coaches are saying about this. But what anybody want to venture to say what they might be thinking looking at that article? 
Well, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of mixed feelings. Some of them who have felt that this was the case probably had a little bit of a confirmation, but I think it might be a little bit disappointing also because it likely means that it's going to interfere with the way they do business as usual. So I think that there has to be some real thinking going into what even training uh, is really doing to the players and the the consequences of these concussive injuries are, are quite dramatic. So that particular article, in the fact that those individuals were chosen and selected that way probably paints a, a very, very dramatic picture. So uh, I do want to say there's a little bit of a selection bias there, um, which obviously has to be taken into consideration also. Almost every single person who had their brain donated to be part of that study um, was someone who was experiencing symptoms of CTE during their uh, adult life. So I think there's a little bit of a, a bias there. But the fact remains that there is going to be a higher prevalence of this illness in football players. That's just the bottom and, line. And what I'd like, I'd like to jump in a little bit here about this, this uh, the prevalence of it and in terms of what we're calling it. I think that the term concussion is not really a good term anymore. The, pr- the, the issue is traumatic brain injury. And then there's these gradations of the level of brain injury. So you go from mild to moderate to severe. I think when you talk to a lot of people now, or if you talk to people in the lay public or people who have kids playing sports, they think concussion is that somebody gets hit very hard, they get knocked out, they're unconscious for a while, and then they regain consciousness and they're dizzy and they have headaches and there's all these other issues then that, p- that flow out of that. A single concussion to the head, as far as I'm aware of from reading the literature, and again, I'm not a, the expert in this in terms of the, of the neurology of it uh, and, the, and the medical aspects of it, but I don't think the single concussion is what's contributing to CTE. What's contributing to CTE is repetitive head impacts that are sub-symptomatic. Uh, they do not show symptoms of it. Anytime the brain is imp- there's a mechanical force imparted on the head, there's going to be that mechanical force is going to be translated to the brain. That might be mild, that might be moderate in severity, it might be severe. This repetitive head impact in any sport, it's just that football has a lot of repetitive head impacts, but repetitive head impacts over in any sport that, that accumulate over time might result in, in a greater prevalence of CTE in those particular athletes. So when the NFL right now is very into, well, concussions are down, we put people into concussion protocol, but every down of every game, the offensive linemen and defensive linemen are pounding their heads together for every play. Running backs are exposed almost every play. And it's not surprising then that those individuals may never leave a game because of a concussion or the so-called quote-unquote concussion where they go into a concussion protocol. They play every down of every game, and then at the end of their career, they've accumulated a lot of damage from these mild traumatic brain injuries. I think we should be calling it traumatic brain injury, not concussion. And are you aware of... the? data that would address the age of the brain if the I don't know if myelination if that is a uh, if a protective aspect of a brain development and ad- addressing protective measure against trauma to the brain but does it, it does it matter that the, the very very first kinds of trauma that a brain sustains at the you know early ages we're putting kids in er, in sports super camps at an increasingly younger age, longer durations, and, and that kind of a thing. Does, so our brain age, is it a factor? So I think this is a quite a complicated issue, and we really lack the kind of data that require longitudinal tracking of individuals from younger years all the way through adulthood to really look at the trajectory that, that results from uh, such injuries. 
But what I would say is that there's kind of two ways to take it. One is that if there are injuries that are sustained um, during early in development, then it's possible that because the brain is still highly plastic, it might be able to recover from that. But also at that time, the brain is still wiring itself and still building its adult networks. And anything that interferes with that can really change the brain in a semi-permanent way. So there's really two ways to take it. And I think the jury is still out. We don't really know enough of the data to be able to say for sure what impact it's going to have on development. Yeah, let's think about what th what's happening during a traumatic injury to the brain. There's there's really sort of two, the way I see it, two kinds of events that are occurring. There's a mechanical event to the brain in which you can actually structurally put stress on the, the neurons, the axons, the, the connecting cables that, that communicate information within the brain. Those get torn and stretched and, and sheared. Then there's also just the physiological effect of a of an injury to the brain. That is, the impact itself causes the sudden release of a variety of neurotransmitters. One's called glutamate, but it's just the neurotransmitters involved not relevant right at this moment. But you get this massive release of some neurotransmitters. You get this disruption of the electrical environment of the brain, and what happens is that por portion of the brain sort of, you know, it metabolically goes into overdrive, trying to repair. And, and bring those those disruptions back into balance. There's a mismatch as the energy demands of the brain go up focally, the cardiovascular system doesn't deliver enough oxygen to that region. There's this classic supply-demand mismatch going on, which as a cardiopulmonary physiologist, I deal with, with when I talk about exercise and everything else. It makes a lot of sense to me. And this supply-demand mismatch combined with actual you know, mechanical stretching and shearing of the neurons that repeating, you know, over and over again must have, you know, these effects downstream. So, uh, Jim, you're absolutely right. I think that uh, there's a, a variety of different effects that happen with, with injury. And um, uh, one of the other things to think about also is that there's a, a major inflammatory response that happens whenever there's traumatic brain injury like that. So a lot of these factors that are going to be released are intended to try to repair the brain. But with repetitive injuries, that's, that's going to change. Having these inflammatory factors or that inflammatory response mounted for an extended period of time is not a good thing for the brain. For those of you who've just joined us, my two guests for the entire hour are James Hicks, UCI professor and director of the Center for Exercise Medicine and Sports Sciences, and Michael Yasa, professor of neurobiology and behavior and director of the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. And they're talking about their and others' latest research along the continuum, but we were first talking about the benefits of physical activity, and now we're going to we're dropping the concussion word and we're using traumatic brain injury to address what's really happening here both for men and women so when Roger Goodell the National Football League commissioner was asked about his reaction to the findings of the chronic traumatic encephalopathy connection with his players one quote was I think that one thing everyone agrees on is there's an awful lot more questions than there are answers at this point he's really deflecting the kind of, okay, what's your, what's your next move? I want for the two of you to, to respond to th that institutional response there. We could, also, we could talk about any formal athletic association, but right now it's mainly I'd like to talk about the NFL's response. So I'll give you my reaction to that is that I think one, one answer uh, came in the form of that uh, AJAMA paper. And um, it's one of many answers, and, and the same answer has been given repeatedly um, to the question of whether or not 
uh, traumatic brain injury or playing football is directly related to uh, the prevalence of CTE. And I think we have a, a very, very clear answer. The questions that are maybe outstanding have to do with whether uh, changing rules, whether changing things about the way we do business as usual will change that prevalence. And, and that's the question that people like me would be interested in, in asking. But I think the answer is so far fairly clear. Yeah, let me just uh, respond. I hadn't heard that quote from Roger Goodell, but let me respond to that quote. You know, if the NFL is interested then and makes the comment that there are many more questions than answers right now, then you would suspect that, or I would uh, hypothesize that they would want to donate money to help answer some of those questions. And they did that. They provided, they committed $30 million to the National Institutes of Health to study traumatic brain injury, concussion in sports and particularly in football. And just recently, they withdrew half of that from the NIH. So, you know, are they, they're saying that, they're, that there's many more questions to answer than, you know, help contribute to resources that, to make those studies, to conduct those studies, to examine what's going on in detail if you're really concerned about it. And the NFL has the resources to do that. I can see other or, associ sports associations, particularly some of our nonprofits and, and amateur athletics that don't have the resources, but the NFL has tremendous amounts of resources. And they have an obligation to the players who are putting their lives on the line both immediately and also downstream from after, after their career is over to, to try to understand what's happening in this game. Now, you mentioned the, uh, what the, the funds that Roger Goodell has control of, but did the Players Association, do they have funds that are supporting research? I don't know if the Players Association One has month, yeah, funds to do that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that, that question either, but I would, I would suggest that maybe we think about it uh, in a slightly different way, the, uh, the NFL pulling support. This would be very, very similar to, let's say, a pharmaceutical company deciding to support research into a, a drug and then um, finding out that by uh, backing a certain scientist, they might have results that would actually be not in favor of the drug's effect or show some toxicity, and then deciding to pull support for that is something that we've always thought of as as, uh, well, not the right way to do things. And this is why we have a National Institutes of Health that is supposed to pick out the scientists that receive these awards. And, um, uh, you know, pulling support for scientists that might potentially have findings that be, would be conflicting with policy is, is a problem. Or, well, I, I'm wondering, too, what the pharmaceutical support of dementia is. If there's something that they cannot patent, they can't get the patent for an exercise regimen, so they're they're out of there. So that's or what what they can't own, they can't re get revenue from. Then that's discontinued. But it's a it's a huge disservice to the public mm -hmm. health. Well, another interesting aspect in preparation for this interview that you brought up, Jim Hicks, was athletes are of a of a mindset that there it's the eye on the prize that the athletic win the the stellar profile the financial returns they are all more valuable to that athlete than their being 40 and being able to remember their wife's cell phone number so right. but what there's a sort of an interesting sociodemographic backstory that i think is very interesting for you to tell us right, about right you know i'm not a, i'm not a demographer and i'm not a social scientist but i mean uh, someone interested in sports obviously someone who follows this this area with some uh, intense interest. I think that it, it's almost an intractable problem for the NFL. And we're, and we're harping on the NFL today because of this JAMA article, but also because that is the sport that is far and above all other sports in terms of 
the potential injuries to the brain. So, and there's so many. That, I mean, I'm looking right. at the fan base, and all these people are watching these gladiators do themselves in. Right. So, so I think that the, um, you know, it's almost an intractable problem. The what we said earlier was it's not the single concussion that a player gets in a particular game. It's the repeated impacts to the brain. The game itself is, is is designed in such a way that that's going to happen every time. That's just the way it's played. And so I don't think the NFL can no pun intended, wrap their head around how do we alter this game. It would be a fundamental change in the game not to have offensive and defensive linemen line up against each other, put their heads down, and crash into each other for each play. Now, I played high school football, so I get, you know, I get the what's going on, you know, at least at that level. Not, I didn't play college or professional. But. So that, that's going to make that's, – that, that's a major challenge for the game. I think that for a lot of players, we they now know going into the game that there are inherent risks, right? And for the professional player, not for I want to talk about the pop Warner player. That's another issue, and for the high school player, but for the person that's decided to go the professional route, for them, they many of those players are coming from a socioeconomic background where this is their sort of ticket out of that kind of environment where they have are going to make so the, the resource reward is so large, potentially so large for them that they can set themselves up, their family up, and they really provide a, a better life. And everybody wants to provide a better life for their family. So it's a natural tendency to say, look it, I know these risks are going to happen, and I'm just going to go for it and hope that it works out and hope that it doesn't happen to me. And so I can see it being a natural thing that's going to – the uh, players not wanting to hear all the details about it because, look it, they want to play the game. And uh, and you have some players now deciding to quit, you know, saying, I don't want to do this anymore. And and, uh, and you have ex-NFL players saying they wouldn't want their kids to play the game. So and their decision to withdraw from the sport is intentionally related to CT. Yes, yes. Michael? So, Jim, would you also agree that maybe their notion of risk – maybe a little bit off. In other words, traditionally people have thought of risk as how many concussions can I possibly handle over right. a period of time before I'm okay to retire and whether this is within my contract limits and so on. But if we're talking about this is not about concussions, this is about the repetitive injury that happens on the day-to-day, then even practice poses a risk. Right, right. So, so it's a very, very different way to think about the risk associated with it and with enough education and, and outreach and advocacy with those players to let them know really what kind of risk they're getting into, many more of them might be changing their mind very early. Yeah, they might. I mean, I can think of an analogy where people are, uh, it's it's easy to quantify how many pitches a pitcher pitches, right. and that's watch, but there isn't any kind of quantifying of bumps that are subclinical to the brain. Well, that's an area that Dr. Robert Cantu at the Sports Legacy Institute in Boston has been pushing. It's called the hit count. And it's equivalent to the pitching count in baseball. In other words, after a certain number of hits to the head, a player would be removed from the game. The challenge, though, right now is we don't know what an individual, those subconcussive, we call them subconcussives or hits that are not symptomatic, what do those mean to brain function? How many of those, at what number does that become significant? What is the underlying physiological changes that are occurring with these subconcussive or these moderate or mild injuries to the brain? At what point do you start to see symptoms develop? So I don't think anybody has a good number right now that they can give you. What magnitude of each hit, the frequency, how much time you have, down downtime you have between hits, all that needs to be looked at. In terms, and that's what we're trying to do in the sport of water polo is get a sense of how many hits a player takes during practice, how many hits they get during a game, 
try to quantify the magnitude of those hits. We need to really understand what's going on in the games. And that's a certain level of sophistication that the players aren't exactly equipped with. And I, I can there was a BBC coverage of this after the Gem article came out, mm -hmm. and there was a quarterback who he took a terrific bump, and then he 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 set up his play backwards, or he was in reverse, and he went to the to the wrong uh, side of the field right. after the play. I mean everything, but. He wasn't, with a, that massive trauma to his brain, He di it didn't register. So something right. that's subclinical, it's going to be taking some really fine tuning for the players to be able to right. properly assess their own health. Well, remember, anytime there's a, a mechanical impact to the brain, if the basic definition of an injury to the brain is that there's a, a mechanical impact to the brain that causes a change in brain function. So if I get hit hard enough that I can say, wow, I just got my bell rung, or I just saw a flash of light. You don't normally see flashes of light, but if you get impacted hard enough to see flashes of light or have a ringing in your ears afterwards, you've, got a, you've had a traumatic brain injury. Now, it could be very mild, but you've done something to the brain to cause a momentary change in its function. And so that repeat, those repeated mild hits might, you know, th they look like they're adding up over time. We just don't know exactly how they add up. As Mike said earlier, we don't, know, we don't have enough information about longitudinal studies being exposed early as compared to later, but it's these repeated hits to the head that I think are the big issues. So one other thing uh, that's that's important to think about is that we don't know to what extent all of these things will be actually felt in a symptomatic way. So there are many ways to change brain function in complete absence of any knowledge that brain function has actually changed. So at the point that it's becoming symptomatic, things have kind of gotten severe enough that they're actually being felt and reported by, by, the, by the person experiencing them. But a lot of times what we see is your brain is actually very, very good at keeping you from knowing that something is wrong. There's all sorts of adaptive compensation that happens in the early stages of any injury, and it's only when things get severe enough that you actually start to report symptoms. So you can imagine that if there's a buildup of these very, very mild, even subsymptomatic kinds of injuries, that over time those would add up, and, and eventually when patients are reporting symptoms or individuals are reporting symptoms, it's almost the brain is already kind of far along in injury. So we can throw in a few other sports while we're at this that I, I was interested in what the professional boxing associations, they were talking about there is actually there's more trauma, more serious injury to boxers. And you can explain to us the physiology, the anatomy there where it's the hook for one thing. It's a different kind of a blow to the brain and that boxers don't have these tremendous necks that are built up, so that protective measure isn't there. So I don't know if you want to talk, break it down. We can go sport to sport a little bit, and then there are always it's the all-important sort of gender divide that we'd like to also transnavigate. I, again, I, I'm not necessarily, I'm not a boxing fan, but it goes back to these two kinds of injuries, right? So you have, you know, the, the, the brain can be, as the head gets moved in one direction, the brain bounces against one side of the inside of the brain, uh, skull and then bounces back. So this is this coup contra coup of the brain. But then there's the rotation of the head. And, it's these, and the people think it's this rotational force that is causing these really disruptions of axons and these, these neural connections due to stress forces. So I, I can see in boxing when somebody gets hit in the head, it's not only going in one X, you know, XY plane, but it, it's being rotated. And those rotational effects might have these tremendous impacts on brain function. And in fact, you know, CTE or the result of repeated impact to the brain on cognitive function was first noticed in boxers, you know, back in the 50s and 60s. I mean, we, they, it was called being punch drunk, right? And so 
they've, they've known about this for a long time, that repeated impacts to the head were, were doing something to brain function over time. I mean, it's interesting, Claudia, you said maybe we can take uh, different sports and, and dissect them, but here you have a sport where the entire purpose is to exactly do that. So it, it's not a side effect of the sport. This is just what the sport is based on. And so I, I would perhaps suggest that, yes, of course, the rotational injury might be a bit more severe to white matter, to axons, because they're getting sort of sheared and rotated. But the linear uh, kinds of hits as well are very problematic for the brain. It's the same kind of thing that happens if you're in a car accident and you have whiplash. I mean, the, the head goes back and forth, and, and those linear movements are also uh, very, very bad for the brain. These coup-contra-coup coup kinds of movements are stretching the axons and the white matter in, in ways that it should not be stretched. So you're going to get injuries no matter what with any sort of hit to the head, whether it's a hook or a straight-on punch. I think boxing is an example of, uh, of a sport that is entirely based on that kind of physical injury. But, but you did say something earlier, Claudia, about the neck musculature of boxers. I don't know quantitatively the differences if boxers have not as much development of neck muscles, but that does sort of lead into the uh, observation that there is a gender difference in, in concussion and in uh, concussive incidents uh, in sports. Women have, in some sports like soccer, uh, have one and a half to three times higher incident rates of concussion compared to their male counterparts. And there are several hypotheses about why that happens. One of those is the development of the neck musculature. Anecdotally, we know, for example, if you, the sport that we've been studying, water polo, water polo coaches have told us, and even some of the water polo players have told us, that for the goalies, when they see the ball coming at them, they, they get up in the water. They prepare for blocking the ball with their hands, and if the, sometimes the ball hits them in the head, but they were prepared for it. So they tighten up. They tighten up the neck musculature. They're ready for the hit. What goalies will tell you, and as I said, coaches anecdotally, is that sometimes when the ball comes off the crossbar and they weren't ready for that, the angle that it was coming in at, the, the impact seemed to have a bigger effect than if they were ready for it. So I think that it gets to the neck musculature. When, you, when you're not ready for the hit, it may have a bigger effect because the head rotates more or gets moved more in a linear direction than if you are ready for the hit. And they say, and again, the hypothesis is that for female athletes, with the higher incident rates of concussion that it might have to do with development of the neck musculature. You know, one of the most interesting facets that I found about gender differences, if you look across all sports, is that uh, the, the prevalence is certainly lower in, in females because their involvement in these kinds of um, sort of full contact kinds of sports is a little bit lower. So it only ends up being about 20%, at least in the, in the largest studies that have looked at this over several thousand individuals. But in those 20%, the mortality rate and the severity of injuries are higher among females than they are in men. So clearly they are more vulnerable to the kinds of injuries that we're talking about. So with that observation, has there been more discussion and more resources put into bringing more female participants into this clinical research? Yes. So actually, that's that's a, a huge conversation, not just in this particular type of research, but across all domains of, of biomedical research. And the National Institutes of Health is now very, very much um, trying to push all scientists who are proposing to do research with either human subjects or even animal models for equal inclusion of, of the two sexes and making sure that we have appropriate representation. And it turns out that for many of the studies that have been used to try to figure out what are the appropriate doses of certain medication or all of these things in the past have been primarily using male participants and that's really kind of uh, led to some uh, terrible results with the impact of these things on females. 
So, Jim, you were talking, uh, you were going to give us a sort of a enumeration of factors that made females, in your observations, a bit more vulnerable than their male counterparts. You were you said you were talking about the neck musculature, but right. you've also, in preparation for the interview, you were talking a bit about there's even a breakdown of their whole menses. Right. Where, well, how that has, it's a factor that's it's bringing up some interesting questions. Right. Again, I, this is not an area that I've done personally done any research in, but again, preparing for the interview is looking at some of the literature, and there is the these changes during the menstrual cycle. So two weeks prior to menstruation, women who receive a concussion in that two-week period take longer to recover from that concussion, and the effects are more severe as compared to two weeks after. So there's definitely something going on with these cyclic changes in hormones. Also in terms of a, a, when a female athlete, or a, not just an athlete, any female that has a significant concussion, they may actually have irregular cycles after for several cycles afterwards. Now, does that mean that the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland is being impacted somehow? I don't know. And I don't think anybody could tell us exactly mechanistically what's going on. But we do know that these hormonal changes that occur every month have an effect on the severity of the, of the symptoms and the, of the injury itself during a concussion, which is an interesting. Very interesting. Airplane. Are there, for both of you, are there other factors for athletes that distinguish female athletes from the males in terms of their physiology or their anatomy? Well, there have been these studies. This gets away from the brain, but there's been studies on that female athletes, uh, particularly in soccer, are more have more prevalence of uh, ACL tears. And that, again, people have done biomechanical kinds of studies to see if there's something with hip width and the angle of the femur. And, all, you know, and again, that's not my area, but there have been these observations. I'd like to actually ask Mike if there are studies on gender differences in the role of physical activity and and brain health. I mean, it, are do females gain better, have more benefit or less benefit, or are they exactly the yeah. same? Yeah. So, so that's another very interesting area of research, and I can tell you that the, the data that are probably most robust at this point are uh, looking at older adults and trying to again stave off the risk for Alzheimer's disease. It turns out that the kinds of exercise and durations of exercise that really work well for females are actually different from the ones that that work for males. And in general, to promote cognitive health, to promote neuropsychiatric health, things like walking or jogging, even for short periods of time, tend to work very, very well in women, but more high-intensity exercise tends to work well in males. And there may be other factors that contribute to this, so it's possible that uh, people have hypothesized, for example, the social bonding during walking or jogging with women that might actually contribute to uh, some of the positive effects to emotional well-being and so on. It's, uh, it's, it's clear also the nature of the exercise makes a big difference in terms of what's helpful and, and what's not. Well, I have to offer the anecdotal piece that I learned from the memory retraining from your center years ago. It was the cognitive and the motor connection. So when women are yakking away on their hike, there is an amazing amount of retention. And I, I have a personal uh, corroboration of that, that synapse. Right. So, Jim, did you, or Michael, you have more to say? I know I think that was uh, that's kind of what I have to say about the gender difference at least in terms of brain health this, there's probably a lot more that we still don't know because this is now much more uh, uh, a big area of growth I think in terms of research and research funding so we'll have a lot more to say about it as we start to kind of work out what are the, what are the right exercise prescriptions
For those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on Radio KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guests are James Hicks, UCI professor and director of the Center for Exercise Medicine and Sports Medicine, and Michael Yasa, UCI professor and director at the Center for Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. So we're talking now about gender differences. Mainly we're concerned about traumatic brain injury. So it's very particular, but with the gender differences, the factor of amounts, uh, the repetition of the trauma, or I'm also interested in the gender difference or just in what we know about in just the male athletes is whether, the, let's say, the time span between hits. Does, uh, I mean, because I remember from a, a crude measure from informal sports is that one has to lay low for a couple of weeks. Not right. to, So what's, what's happening there? I think in terms of the, the timing afterwards, again, that's actually one of the goals of our research here at UCI is to come up with an evidence-based uh, approach to return to play. And so doing that, we're, we're actually combining cognitive testing, EEG analysis, eventually we're going to do uh, imaging, neuroimaging, and blood biomarkers. We're also going to add into that some cardiovascular measurements. It turns out that concussion, uh, moderate to severe traumatic brain injury, results in disruption of heart rate regulation in athletes, or in anybody, I should just say, has had the concussion for some period of time. So we're going to combine some of the work that I've actually done, is that, you know, working on the heart to to see how that is influenced. The goal is, again, evidence-based prescription to when to return to play. So there's lots of open questions about how long an athlete should be out for. One of the best explanations I can give right now based on the physiology of what's going on is that the brain is susceptible because of this mismatch between oxygen demand by the brain, trying to reestablish the normal function after this impact where you had all this release of neurotransmitters and ionic disruption and the mismatch with supply, the supply of oxygen by the blood. That mismatch causes this general then these are general electrical changes within the brain that make it more susceptible to additional injuries downstream. So right now, I think they, if a person gets an indefinite concussion, they hold them out various sports. I think at UCR, concussion protocols, they're out for seven days or up to 10 days after a concussion. But typically, it's until they're completely symptom-free, at least. Exactly. Yeah, they have to be symptom-free. They come back in to get retested using a variety of tests, and, and when they're symptom-free, they get back in. But I'm puzzled by what symptom-free is if it's an asymptomatic hit. Well, well, that's the thing is that asymptomatic means the player's not reporting it, the coach doesn't know, the trainers don't know because they're getting, they're getting hit in the head, but they don't show any real symptoms. And so for that, nobody's going to – we don't know. And that's why actually we have on our players, we're monitoring with these little small force transducers, these 3D accelerometers, the, the magnitude of the hits and the frequency of those hits during games. So we'll know what is the, uh, you know, just how often are they getting hit and what are the sizes of those hits. And we actually have a cutoff. So when they're hit at a certain magnitude, then we bring them in and do EEG analysis and blood biomarkers and the like. So if I, if I got right from your video uh, at your center, then it's placed in a certain part in the water polo helmet, but it, it's recording collecting data about trauma anywhere else to the Yeah, to so the it's head? a small 3D accelerometer that fits in the water polo cap. Uh, water polo doesn't have helmets. They have a well, cap. My bad. <laughs> no, that's all right. They have a cap, and it fits in the back of the cap, and it records any hit to the head and then transmits that hit 
forces that were impacted on the head in real time to a receiver on the pool deck, and then we uploaded to a cloud-based server. And then later offline analysis, we could look at 3D rotation of the head, and it predicts where the impact took place based on the forces that were imparted on the head. So I, I do want to comment that this kind of approach, I think, is very, very important because there's another bias that we didn't really talk about. We talk about the bias from the institutions, and when we talk about sort of not knowing that there's symptoms, but there's, there's another phenomenon that's happening here, which is that if you're an athlete and you're in the middle of the game, someone who's really at the top of the game and get an injury and the symptoms are minor, something that you may not think is a big deal, there's a pressure for you to stay in the game and right. to continue to play, especially if you're somebody who's, who's really kind of, uh, you know, doing well in the game and is really, their contribution is very important for the team to, to succeed. So, so making sure that those individuals understand that no matter how minor those symptoms can be, it is absolutely worth reporting. Right, and that actually goes to this gender difference as well. It's been, anecd again, anecdotally, and I've been told by coaches and trainers that male athletes under-report. Female athletes tend not to underreport. They will report an injury. Males so. also tend to go to the doctor a lot less. Yeah. Well, I think that the the bias starts out with the recruitment. I'm and I'm gonna, I'm thinking of the elite high school football program in Orange County, and to witness their recruiting, it seems like it's sort of all full court press to get athletes to select them from all over the country to be a part of this. It looks just as, cl as close as you could get to a, a professional athletic scenario. So you're putting all this pressure on this person. You're going to give your all. You're going to join right. the glory. So it's it's the film's rolling right. even before they put the newest size jock strap on. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, I'm a sports fan. Sports uh, are big in America, part of American culture. And have been a big part of American culture all ever since the late 1800s. And it continues to grow. And it, for some sports, basketball, football, uh, American football, it, there's a lot of money to be made. And so there's lots of pressure for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, athletes, people attain that level of athleticism. They, they are a particular personality type. They, they're very competitive. They like to compete. And at the same time, there are opportunities for them to make uh, lots of uh, money after, you know. So there's lots of pressures on them. And I can understand why they underreport. I mean, they, and you see this, professional players don't want to report injuries either. I mean, if they're not symptomatic. If it influences their play, they'll report. But if it doesn't influence their play, they're not going to report it. Well, I'm going to give the two of you a, a scenario, an opportunity. If you were the directors of a, I don't know if you want to say the high school program, I'd rather start there because this is where the first trauma begins. Uh, well, actually, it's happening in sort of even at elementary school with some of those football. Mm -hmm. It's flag football, so there, there's probably not as much trauma in flag football, but there's probably still, it's still happening. Mm -hmm. But let's put you two in the position of leading the athletic departments, and what guidelines, what would you put in your, in, not in your indemnity agreement, because I noticed, I checked out a few of those too, and they were absolutely worthless to sort of, to address what hazards really are out there in the sports world mm. but what would you two do we can start with jim hicks what would you do to lead on this program and make it smarter for the longer term what well, would you do yeah what would i do well first let me start off by saying that and, and i'll speak for mike as well we are big promoters of the benefits of physical activity and physical activity in all of its forms, including sports. There's a lot of benefits to sports, I believe. And we want to encourage sports. But at the same time, some sports have inherent risks to them. 
And so if I was an athletic director of any major program, I would want, whether it's high school or college, I would want to make sure that we have evidence, an evidence-based approach to the, the degree of those risks, and then how best, by having that increased knowledge, how do we best manage the players uh, of a particular sport so as to make it, to try to de decrease the risk as, as much as possible, but you're not going to eliminate it. There's always going to be risk when you're physically active and you're involved in any sort of event, whether it's, I can go for a walk this afternoon and trip on the sidewalk and get a concussion. I mean, so... So I, I would want an evidence-based approach to my athletic program. And I will say one thing while we're talking about it. Here at UCI, we have an athletic director, Mike Izzy, who joined us several years ago from Stanford. And Mike is a very forward-thinking athletic director. And he very much has been supportive of our efforts in looking at the various student athletes at UCI. We've done the studies now on the soccer team. We've done studies on the, the water polo team. And we're continuing to do those studies. And Mike and his coaches have all been very supportive. And I applaud Mike for that because there's a lot of athletic programs, Division I athletic programs, that would not do that. And I take it just from Mike. Mike wants to know the evidence. He wants to know just what's going on and wants to support the research mission of the campus. So if I was an athletic director, I'd take the same approach. Let's get some evidence. Let's use that, translate that into policy or into understanding how to manage the game. And then if there needs to be rule changes because of growing evidence, then at the national level, whoever makes those rules try to convince those those organizations or oversight bodies to make rule changes. So I, I completely agree with, with Jim's approach. In fact, I, I think our approach would be almost identical. The only thing I might add to that is also maybe an emphasis on education um, for the players of the risks that are involved and then uh, what the impact of trying to systematically reduce those risks might be. So whether it's changing the rules, it's changing the gear, changing something about the way the game is played, being able to look for evidence-based approaches to try to systematically reduce that risk and see what the impact is on the prevalence of, uh, of these injuries, I think is, is very, very important to build as part of any athletic program. So as we wrap up this program, I'd like for both of you to have a chance to pitch to our listeners, any clinical trials that you'd like to invite them to participate in? I'm not involved in any clinical trials, but might be, but might be. Or observational, but any any kind of research that you're looking for some support in. Well, it could be other kinds of support. Well, as I say, we are currently we are currently expanding our study in the sport of water polo. We are now going to start moving out to club water polo. We're working here first with the UCI club teams. These are not the Division One athletes. These are going to be the men's and women club team. Our goal ultimately is to expand out across Orange County. That's our longer-term vision. And so we will look for support from traditional funding agencies. We look we're interested in any sort of philanthropic support for the research in which we're going to be looking at head impact injuries in a variety of different sports. Again, our goal is to have evidence-based approaches to both diagnosis as well as return to play. And uh, so that's kind of the direction we're going in for our study, which we bring together in an engineering approach a medical approach, a life science approach to understanding what's happening in the sports. And we'll give everybody a chance to link to your center with the podcast summary. But yeah. you can give us a pitch of that. Yeah, so Where they to can go to? well, they can go to uh, emssi.uci.edu, and that'll take them right to our Center for Exercise Medicine Sports Sciences. You can read about it. You can read about our undergraduate major. You can read about our training grant. You can read about the kinds of work that's going on within the various people that affiliate with the center. Thank you. Michael, your 
trials? Sure. Yeah, so I, I have a few things I can, I can talk about. Um, one is that we are interested in, actually across all ages, young adults, older adults who are interested in participating in exercise studies. These are mild exercise studies that we're trying to understand the impact of uh, mild exercise that is, that is not very, very stressful. It's very short duration on learning and memory. Um, so those exercise studies are ongoing. And if you're interested, you can go to our website and uh, sign up to receive information. It's yasalab, Y-A-S-S-A-L-A-B.org. And that'll take you to our, our research website that has all of these uh, studies linked. The other study that I'd like to mention is actually a clinical trial in older adults with memory loss or memory impairment. This is an NIH-supported uh, clinical trial. It's called the EXERT trial. E-X-E-R-T. Um, UCI is one of several sites that is uh, coordinating this trial. And if you are interested in participating in this particular trial, you can contact the, the UCI Mind Institute. And the uh, website for that is mind.uci.edu. Thank you. Well, gentlemen, that's all the time we have. It's really been good getting your expertise and your, actually your, your broader thinking. You're, you're willing to go there with us today, too. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. My guests were James Hicks, UCI professor and director of the Center for Exercise Medicine and Sports Sciences, and Michael Yass, professor of neurobiology and memory at UCI. Thank you very much. Well, that is my wrap. If you missed a portion of this or any other other show, head on over to askaleader.com. Next week, we'll hear from Van Vifat and Blake Lane. will take the fiction out of science fiction about grand transportation, slaying some of those myths and post us on what's brewing up about zero net and self-driving vehicles. The girls on the run, Orange County, they'll post us on how they're helping elementary and middle school girls develop essential skills. Talk with you next week. Thanks for listening.